All right, good morning. Um, I like to start off something. I always start this off with my youth. So if you know how to respond, please do this. Do it loud. If you don't know, um, just when I say God is good, you all say it all the time. I'll say all the time, and I'll say God is good. God is dead. The movie stole that from me, just to let you know. So, God is good. All the time? Awesome. I'm going to read um, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Now, for a moment, I just want you to do something awkward for me. I want you to look to the person beside you, the one that you like, and uh, stare deeply into their eyes. Just stare deeply into their eyes. I know, I know, like, hey, we're not in youth ministry, but stare at them, okay? Keep staring. All right. Shh. Keep staring, but keep quiet. This is a little awkward if the person you're staring at is the person you've been praying for all semester. God, please. Let this be the one. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I chose the right seat today. All right. We're in chapel here. Come on, calm down. Uh, stare at that person. I want you to say, it is too good to be true. Mm. Mm. All right. It is too good to be true. Uh, let's, let's open up in a word of prayer, guys. Father, we, uh, we thank you for today. Today is the day that you've made, and Lord, we're grateful for it. We thank you for your new mercies that you give us. Father, we ask now, Lord, that as we go into your word, as we talk about one of the many names uh, that you hold and that you have, Father, would you speak to us? God, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, that says in Luke 12, 12, that you would speak on my behalf. So, Father, I ask that you would filter my words, and even more, God, would you filter our ears and what we need to hear. In your precious name, amen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, I think about that passage and I just think, too good to be true. This is too good to be true. This morning I get the privilege to share with you guys, to skim over something so deep outrageously deep that I cannot unpackage in just one morning, in just 30 minutes. And it's the name Jehovah Sekenu. In other words, the Lord is our righteous Savior, which is to say the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sekenu. I think about this phrase, to get to be tree, true, and I think of three examples in my life or in our lives that we, in which we say this phrase, oh, that's too good to be true. The first one is when you see the perfect person. Yeah, the first day of prairie, freshman year, yeah. and, and you see like five of those dudes in the courtyard with the guitars going like, and it's like, ooh, that guy, look at him, plays guitar, looks fine, probably has great character, God, man after God's own heart, that's a perfect guy, mm, too good to be true, is it too good to be true? Then you go to the second, yeah, yeah, someone says, yeah, someone's already tried. So the second one is the perfect timing. I love that. And, and if there's mamas here, I know this just by, just by watching my wife, like our two little nuggets, they got, they got preschool, one that just has to get on nap, just, it's just a full schedule and like double booking herself and she needs to get here and here and my wife needs to just, and, and what's wonderful is that when I come home and she is just happy. 
and it's like everything worked out great today. You know, the scheduling was right. Nothing went over. No, nothing overlapped. Everything went smooth. It is too good to be true. Timing is everything. And the third one is an obvious: the gift. Given a gift that, that's unexpected, or given a gift that's just like, I desired this. Sometimes that gift is the perfect person, like guitar player. But the gift is like, whoo! How did you know? Too good to be true, right? And so there's three; those three things popped in my mind. And then, and then I'm just I'm just stuck on this word of remember, reminding. And 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 Pastor Dan uh, at our church, our speaking pastor, he just he reminded me of this that a, a common word that God uses through Scripture is remember, remember, remember. And so here I am speaking at PBI, a chapel, and it's like if you knew who I was back then, it's like what. <laughs> Why is, Pat, why is James Choi up there? And I'm still thinking, this is too good to be true. And uh, I, uh, I'm thinking about my time in Prairie, and, and then I'm blown away. And I'm still blown away because I'm married to, like, the most wonderful wife. And I have awesome little nuggets, my little kids. We got one on the way in the oven. She'll pop out soon. It's a girl. And uh, I just stop for a moment. I go, I just reflect, and I think, how is this possible? This is too good to be true. And then I think about the times where I was so suave in Prairie, trying to woo my wife over, and uh, I was horrible. <laughs> I was horrible. I was a putz. Like, I thought I was the, 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 the bee's knees, the, the big dealio. Then I come, and I, I fall in love with a nice Christian woman. It's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> this is awkward. And, and what was awkward is everyone else around us looking at us like, this is awkward. Cassie, why are you dating a guy like that? And I tell my youth all the time, if you ever date someone or are interested in someone that was like me, my first and second year, run. <laughs> run. And, and so I think, oh, God, thank you. Have mercy. Have you given Cassie enough grace to give me grace to fall in love with me? And there's just two examples that I just know I was a wreck like, fast forward, I, I like her so much, we're in the dining hall, and our table is rowdy. Like, we are rowdy, rowdy at this table, throwing food at people, throwing food at each other. We're loud, we're, yeah, we're eating. And then these girls, and my, my wife, she came to pray, she's a nurse, hey. And uh, she comes with her ladies to the table, and it's like a scene out of the movie. And, and here I am, loud as I can be, and she sits right beside me. And all of a sudden, my head gains like 50 pounds, and I'm just like, Voomp! and I'm just eating. Yeah, and, and I'm sweating, my glasses are like, and every single friend of mine is just kicking me in the leg, like, come on, what are you doing? I'm just, and I'm screaming to myself, put your head up, you putz, what are you doing? And here I am, you know, at night on MSN, I'm like talking all suave, but here I'm just like, and then I set myself up for a trap. I finished my food really fast, and now I sit here and going. So finally, they get up, Cassie gets up, and she's about to leave. This is too good to be true, and I just like, I stop because someone kicks me really hard. And I go, Cassie. And I swear, I was just like, Rrrr! it felt like everyone was watching. She's like, yeah, with all the girls holding the tray. And, and, I, and I look at her and I'm just like, I just felt like I was screaming at myself as these words are coming. I'm like, Cassie, do you want to go work out with me tonight at the gym? <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Have mercy. So fast forward, the, the, the nursing class, they asked me, they used to have chapel on their own. I don't know if they still do, but they asked me, hey, James, would you lead worship with us? Would you play guitar? I was like, sure, let's do it. And lo and behold, the girl of my dreams is on the worship team. And so we practice up in some 
building something. I forget which building, but we're practicing. And all of a sudden, like half an hour in, all of the ladies leave except for Cassie. Hmm, planned out. And so here I am sitting on a stool with my guitar, and I'm just strumming away with my head 50 pounds heavier. And I can see my peripherals that she's putting on her jacket, like, okay, this guy's a loser. And uh, finally, she's about to leave, and I go, Cassie? <laughs> she says it's so much better than me. <laughs> but she goes, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said this, but she said, hey, do you want to learn how to play the piano? She's like, yeah, sure. Takes off her jacket. So we go to the piano, and we sit down, and I teach you Mary Had a Little Lamb. That's, that lasts about 30 seconds. The funny thing is, I don't know how to play piano. <laughs> so, yeah, we're done. 30 seconds of, like, Mary Had a Little Lamb. And so she sits there again. She puts on her jacket, and she's about to leave, and literally, I hit the keys, and I go, Cassie. <laughs> and then the rest was history. I uh, turned around, and I spilled my beans. I just verbally vomited all over her and said, I like you, and uh, all this stuff. And, and finally, after 20 minutes of me spewing on her, she, uh, she's sitting on the table, kicking her knees, and she's like, okay, I like you too. And at that moment, I was like, it is good, and it is true. And I was like, yes. And after that point, did I feel a little bit more free? And then after that, that's when the suave came, the true suave. We got married, and here we are now. Get to the point. We're at chapel. So... <clears throat> what I want you to do is I want you to open your Bibles, um, and we're going to go to the, one of the most depressing books in the Old Testament. We call him the Weeping Prophet, and we're going to go to Jeremiah. And there's only two places that Jehovah Sekanu is mentioned in Jeremiah. And so we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 23, and as you turn there, verses 5 to 6, as you turn there, um, let me just give you some context. Jeremiah has been preaching for 40 years. He has gone through five different kings trying to get the message, the theme of what this book is, repent, turn to God, or destruction. And so in the beginning of Jeremiah, you see a call to be a prophet. And then you see in the next how many chapters um, that he talks to Judah, and he says, look, turn from your sins or destruction. And then you go to the end of Jeremiah, and that same message is then casted to the rest of the nations. But there is this, this glimmer of hope in the middle of such a depressive book. And it starts in chapter 23. It's 10 chapters long, and the two places where we find Jehovah Sikanu is at the bookends of these redemptive chapters, chapter 23 and chapter 33. So here I am. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called Jehovah Sikanu, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And Jeremiah shares this in the midst of a chapter, the beginning of this restorative, um, am I saying that right? He's beginning of a restorative chapter or just a theme that he's going on. But he's talking, he's pulling out amidst this chapter that there are kings and leaders who, are fall, who have fallen and who continually fall. These shepherds that fall, he refers to them as shepherds. These leaders, you guys have forgotten your flock you have scattered them away. You could care less about them. 
And so he goes back to the reference of King David and says, look at the king, the last king who was a shepherd, who took care of the flock, who understood the posture of a shepherd. We've lost it. And everyone has been led astray because of your leadership. And so he reminds him, look, there will be a righteous branch that comes out of the line of David, and he will be king, and he will be shepherd, and he will be called Jehovah Sekinah. For 40 years, Jeremiah reminds these people, God's people, fix your eyes to God. Fix it. Reminds them. You guys are all college students. You've heard it all. You know it all, I think. So let me just remind you guys the gospel story. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin. And as I take those three examples from life, perfect person, perfect time, and perfect gift, whenever we do say that phrase, ah, oh, it's too good to be true. And, and, and just a rabbit trail here. When we say too good to be true, it's, it's almost a phrase of unbelief. It's disbelief. It's like, man, this is, this is way too good. I cannot believe that this is good, that I have this. So in chapter 5, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians, it says, God made him who had no sin. And we see the story beginning, that Christ is born to the Virgin Mary, a woman, fully human, but conceived through the Holy Spirit, fully God. We see in passages like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, that he has no sin, that we have a high priest who, who empathizes with all our weaknesses, has been tempted in every way, but yet has not sinned. And we see him grow up, and we see him live a sinless life. And I don't know about you, if we can be completely honest, I still need to work on this. I have a real problem with people who look perfect, who act perfect, and who plays guitar in the courtyard of freshman year. And it's like, who are you? And I can't just help but imagine that Jesus, as he lives out his life, sinless and perfect, that these men, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, are watching on the side. Who do you think you are? Messiah? Is he saying he's the Messiah? And I look and I reflect when I'm in college. I know the people that I've seen. Like, is that guy really, is, this, is he really who he says he is? Is that true? This guy just doesn't, nothing is wrong with this dude. Everything. He has it together. And if I can be completely honest, my human condition wants to mess up that dude. Because I don't want you to fall because it's too good to be true. Uh-uh. Let's see where your faults are. And so we see that happening in the drama of Christ. And then we come to a place where it says perfect timing. And I, and I, and I reflect on what Paul says in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, and then later in verse 10. He says, at just the right time, Christ came to save the ungodly. And in verse 10, while you were still enemies to God, did he save you? At just the right time. And we have a God that knows exactly when and how and, every, and, and, and at every moment does he know how to interject. We are at a place in this time where there was 400 years of silence, plus silence, 400 plus years of silence from Malachi to when Christ comes on the scene. And let's give it up to those Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious sects. They, um, they brought, they reminded the people of God 
there was a sense of righteousness, like, hey, guys, fix your eyes on God, because it's been so silent since we've heard from him. But yet what tends to happen is as we lean on his righteousness, we get comfortable, we get stuck in the mud, and all of a sudden we add a word to that righteousness, and it's called self. And now we see these Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious people, these Christians, back then, starting to get comfortable and filling the role of righteousness. And now there's no time better than now where Christ says, I need to come. They're expectingly waiting, waiting for a Savior. And so he comes. And it says in that verse, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The right time. And at the end of that passage, do we see a gift? So that in him, through him, Jesus Christ our Lord, we might become the righteousness of God. Let me tell you something. There is nothing better than a gift when it is presented like awesomely. I see a few faces here that I know have, have, who have proposed to their wives and have taken pictures, and, and you can see it on Facebook, and they capture that moment. That's the first thing that pops to my mind. You can just go up to a lady, the girl that you love, and you can be like, hey, you want to marry me? There you go. <laughs> the girl's like, oh my gosh, yes, because they're in love with you. But you amplify the gift by the presentation. The presentation of the gift is what amplifies the gift. Right? If you go all out on your proposal, ooh, you got that girl. Right? She's going to show it off. It doesn't matter how big that ring is. It might, it might, I don't know. But it's the presentation of the gift that is amplified. And so then I think about what is too good. I think about Matthew chapter 27, verses 46. When you go to the scene of Christ on the cross, and before he dies, he says four last phrases. Father, to your hands I commit my spirit. Before that, he says, it is finished. And before that, he says two more phrases. Let us rewind to the Garden of Gethsemane, which also means wine press, a place of pressure. And we remember where Christ is kneeling and praying. And we see in this prayer a reference to Jeremiah 25 in the middle of those 10 chapters, in the middle of those chapters of restoration where it talks about God's cup of wrath. And Jesus starts praying, God, if you can, and if it is in your will, would you pass this cup? And I think about that. I go, I wonder why there was so much pressure. What was the pressure that he was feeling? If there was one, if I can be a little bit heretical and say, if there was one place that Jesus was weak, Maybe, just maybe it was there. And I go, why? That he was so much, it was under pressure so much that his sweat was like drops of blood. And I go, what was he thinking? Could it possibly be that he would be crushed, mocked, whipped, and beaten so that you cannot recognize him anymore? Maybe. Or maybe was it that he was going to take on the sins of the world, past, present, future, that he's never experienced before, that you've never experienced depression or anger or iniquities, and that's all going to fall on your lap. And, and, and I stop for a moment and I think, man, the youth that I work with, when I actually take on the burden of one youth and pray for them and fall in love with them and empathize with them, it's heavy on me. And to intensify that with the history of the world that he takes, I go, is that maybe what the pressure was? For many years, yeah, I thought that. 
This is my opinion. Then it comes to the cross in Matthew chapter 27 and how he presents this beautiful gift that we know of salvation. This is two phrases. Eloi, Eloi, lamai sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, let's just highlight that I know there's probably some of you that think, oh, no, that's not what it means. If you go to Psalms 22 and you un unpackage that, this is what it actually looks like. I need you to know this is, what I, this is my take on this. There's two views. And I think when Christ on the cross says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think, how many times have I said that? God, where are you? Uh, we don't really say it in this way, but it sounds a lot like it is too good to be true. God, where are you right now in this dry season of my life? God, where are you right now in this struggle and this addiction that I'm currently going through that nobody else knows? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what confirms that is the next thing he says is I'm thirsty. And we know the implications of that in the prophecies about why he says I'm thirsty. And then they take the stick and they feed and they, and they quench his thirst. But I think, what other place in scripture does Jesus say, I'm thirsty? And the only other reference is if you go to John chapter 4 and he talks to the woman at the well and he says, I'm thirsty. But he says it in the context of this. If you had known who asked you, I'm thirsty, you would ask me for living water. And Jesus says, I say this because it's for your benefit. So that you get life. Because apart from me, there is no life. But here on the cross, maybe, just maybe, he's amplifying Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where he says he empathizes with all our weaknesses. And there, he understands thirst. He became sin for us. And so maybe it's not the pain and the beating and the, and, and, and the torture that he would get. Maybe it's not even that he would experience for the first time sin. But I think maybe the great sacrifice is that for just the moment, he would be separated from the Father himself, the Trinity, a community. But throughout his life, he says, I am the Father and one. I remain in him. And for just a moment, does he become separated from him. And it was just that little moment that caused him to be in so much anguish. And so I wonder the weight and how important it is for each one of us to know how important it is not to be separated from God and righteousness. I think about that, and I'm reminded of that. And then I'm encouraged by the bookend of Jeremiah chapter 33, if you want to turn there. And he reminds us of what he says in chapter 23. So this is a chapter of the promise of restoration. And he says in verse 14 to 16, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Which is to say, the Lord, our righteousness. And I love that picture. That at the beginning of this, Jesus says, I will restore you, and I will be your righteousness. And when I become that for you, what you see at the end here in restoration, 
that you now will bear my name, Jehovah Sekanu, the Lord our righteousness. Here's where we get stuck in the mud. And if I can give you some implications as we leave here from this word righteousness. What does it mean for me and what does it mean for others? What does it mean for me and what does it mean for my neighbors? Well, it always starts with me. It always starts with you. So if I can quickly just unpackage the DNA of righteousness, I would, it would be made up of two things. A hatred for sin, an anger for sin, against sin, and then a love for the people who are in it. We've heard a different saying kind of like that where it's love the sinner, not the sin. But sometimes we get a little confused in that. So let me say it in a different way. To have a hatred and an anger and a frustration against the brokenness, but let that encourage the act and the love for repairing. See, we see John 3.16, and we know that verse, but yet what makes that verse amplified is verse 17, where it says Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. See, what God did is he filtered his wrath and his hatred for sin through Jesus. And out of that do we see empathy and love and grace for all, so that we might bear his name, Jehovah Sakana. And I wonder, for our neighbors there's so much, so many times where I just want to grab that youth and just clock them on the head. Like, what are you doing? And condemn them. But what I've learned is, James, filter all that self-righteousness, all that hatred for the brokenness that you see through Jesus. And then what you'll see when you meet and encounter people, do you see a grace, a reflection, a sign over your head that says, Jehovah Sakana. And then, again, I didn't really talk about it, but this is, where we get, this is where we do get stuck in the mud. We understand all of this, and what I've told you, you go like, yep, check, yep, good, all right, he's in line, he's not heretical, okay? Um, I don't know. But then we think, man, what about me? And this is, this is just speaking from my own experience. And I love what Dan said, our pastor, he said, this is how you know forget, how you're forgiven. You begin to develop a hatred for the thing that which you ask for forgiveness for. So I think about myself, and often, more often than not, we do this. We, we ask for forgiveness. This kind of looks like this. It's role play. Father, I am so sorry, God. Forgive me for what I've done. Ah, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Help me. Amen. And you get up and you go, and this doesn't, you don't look like a posture of freedom. You're like, oh, gosh, hey, man, I'm doing okay. And then you go back to prayer, and you go, God, I'm so sorry, Father, forgive me. And you're asking again. And you go, God, here's my spiritual contract. I'm going to start reading every day, and I'm going to pray every day. And Father, God, then we're going to be tight. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but for the wrong reasons. Like, God, please, let's do this, Father. And then after two weeks, you've read, you're going through a great devotional, you're praying, and then you're like, yes, God and I are tight, we're good. And God's like, hold the phone. You were good the moment you came to me. You were good the moment I died for you on the cross. But yet what you're doing is you're cheapening my grace and the righteousness that I give you by writing the spiritual contract that makes you feel better instead of relying on the righteousness that I've given you that should make you feel better. And you're not accepting the gift that I've given you. 
But yet we do that and we fall into the spirit of Pharisees and Sadducees where we lean on this righteousness, but then we forget about it and we act and we live and we talk as if the phrase is true. It is too good to be true. How can you forgive me? Is it that easy and simple? He just forgives me? I can, I can just pray and talk to God and say, thank you, God, forgive me for my sins, Lord. Help me to develop a hate for the things that I do not want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. And you walk in freedom and in victory. Hebrews says there is no other sacrifice left to give other than a thank you for what God has already done for you. But here's where we get caught up again. In righteousness, we condemn ourselves and we live in fear and shame and guilt. And it looks different for all of us. But we stay in this condemnation. What God is saying, look, start with the foundation, a good theology of a hatred towards what I hate, but then posture yourself and filter it through Jesus and realize what I've done for you so that you live in victory. And I'm going to end with one more quote here, and it's a little bit weird that I'm going to use a gangster rapper to do this, but it's just so true. A guy named Tupac, he says, realize, realize, realize. If you slow it down, realize, no, realize, realize, realize. And it's like the victory starts when you realize the victory has already been accomplished in the thing that you've already, that you're struggling in. I have a friend who's overcome pornography and masturbation by one thing that he says in the shower or whatever he does, and this is weird and awkward that I just said that, but he goes, the Lord is my righteousness. And it reminds him of the victory that is already given him and has labeled on him. If there's one thing that you need to do, that I need to do as we leave here, yeah, let's continue to be amazed and in disbelief and, un, and just in an unbelievable state of saying, wow, God, Jehovah Sakanu, that is too good to be true. Because it is good and it is true. But do not leave here in unbelief. Do not leave here and do not live out your faith in unbelief. I wonder how much we've overcomplicated the simplicity of what Jesus did. You are the righteousness of Christ. Do you know that? Have you captured it? Do you believe it? I want to end by reading the verses that come before 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and then we'll end in prayer. We'll start in verse, the whole, the whole these, these passages are all great. You can start in verse 11 of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but we'll go down to verse 18. Sorry, 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Jehovah Sakanu. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jehovah Sakanu. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. 
I did not come to condemn this world, but to save the world through me. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Please reflect the name I've given you, Jehovah Sikano. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then finally, if Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33, the two places where you see the name Jehovah Sikano, would ever get married and have a baby, it would be this verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you and I, so that in him, only in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, I have no other words, God, but to reflect and remind myself of the word that you said in Hebrew. There is no other sacrifice left to give but to say thank you. And so, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the work that you've done, not us, but what you have done. Thank you for continually, astronomically, reminding me and blowing me away by the unbelievable gift you've given me. But at the same time, reminding me that it is good and it is true. Father, I am uh, reminded of what you say to your son. You are my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased in. Father, I pray, Lord, as we leave today, that each young man and young woman, each seasoned man and seasoned woman in this room would know that truth. That they are loved, that they are that they are your children, that they please you because and only because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jehovah Sakano, in Jesus' name, amen.